and thank you for coming out. My mic is on? Yes. Okay, I can hear myself back there. So, <laughs> okay, Does, it just sounds like unearthly to have this voice coming from behind you that's your own voice. You know what I mean? It's just, okay. It's just, uh, yes, if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and uh, Joe will give you a Bible. And I'd like to say this Christmas season, you can take that home with you if you need to. Okay, we can do that. Um, there's a, uh, actually, Joel, can you turn it down a little bit? It is really kind of weird <laughs> behind me. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm a normal guy. I don't have this thunderous <laughs> voice. Anyway, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a, a rule in public speaking, okay, when you're going to present something, whether it's a short presentation on you know, radio, television, whatever, in front of a group, and they say, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Okay, that way it just reinforces it. There's a pattern in Scripture which is very similar. Okay, God tells you what he's going to do, he does it, and then he tells it why it changes everything. If you look all through Scripture, we have prophecy which points to the coming of the Messiah. And I'm going to, let's, let's start out, let's open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start out there. Where I'm going to try and follow that pattern in this message where God tells you what he's going to do, he does it, and then he tells you why it changes everything. Genesis 3 is a really sad chapter. It's the chapter where it's the place where man sins and falls away from God. Adam and Eve took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't it interesting? It's the tree, not the, not the, the evil fruit, the evil tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whereby they're going to decide what's good for them. They're going to decide what's bad for them. They're going to be their own gods. Basically, that was the, the, the temptation that, that Satan gave them. And they took of the fruit and they ate. And now God's dealing with them. This is the aftermath. Remember what happens as soon as they hear God walking in the garden, they run and they hide and they're in shame and fear of God. Whereas before, they, if they heard God walking in that garden, they would run to him. Now they're hiding and trying to cover their shame and do that. All the different things that... Uh, we do when we are, sin, we are in sin and apart from God. <clears throat> and he comes down to the Genesis uh, chapter 3 and verse 15. He comes down to the serpent. Now, this is the moment where Satan, literally, it was like taking candy from a baby. Okay? Satan now has control, dominion over the entire earth. Because now Adam and Eve are part of his rebellion against God. And he is over them. And look what God says to him. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. He puts Satan on notice. The very moment Satan takes control of this planet and all that's in rebellion against God, God tells him, there will be someone born who will crush your head. Now, it's interesting the, 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 in this passage, I will put enmity between you and the woman. In between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head. Okay, so now you've got to parse things out here. He's not saying there will be a human child born who will crush your head, born in the normal sense. This is the offspring of the woman. And it's not a group of people that will be born of this woman, it's just one, he. We know that it's a male child will be born from the woman. Adam's excluded from this. Adam is not part of that equation. 
He's not talking to both Adam and Eve and saying, one of your children will end up defeating Satan. He just says that just of the woman. This is the very first prophecy about the Messiah. Given at the very moment that Satan took control of the planet, he puts them on notice. You think you've won. You think you walked in here and took my creation, these people made in my image, you took them away. I'm going to show you how much I love them. And we're going to, one of, one of her offspring will crush your head. You'll bite his heel. You're going to wound him, but he's going to crush you. Game on. Literally, that's what he's saying. Game on. You think you can rebel against me. You think you can take from me. You think you can destroy my plans. You think you can destroy my creation. You think you can do anything. You think you can make war against me. Game on. We're going to do this. And isn't it interesting that the very first prophecy is placed in the context of spiritual warfare? That the ministry and the work of the Messiah is in the context of destroying the work of Satan. In your life, in my life, over this whole world. Can I get an amen there? He came to destroy the work of Satan. Now, we're going to fast forward a little bit. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9. This is hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. Hundreds of years. Now, when you have something that enters into a culture, and the, 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 the Jews read these scriptures aloud in the synagogues, they memorized vast portions of the Old Testament as children. This is, what the, this is their religious life, was to memorize the Word of God, to repeat it, to meditate on it. This is a time when people didn't have a copy of their own Bible in their possession. They would go to the synagogue, and they would pay attention. And their entire educational system, their religious educational system, was to get people to understand, re remember the words of Scripture, to memorize these words. So imagine, for hundreds of years, you have these words being memorized and repeated by the entire nation of Israel. It's called a headwaters event, where God places something, like, like when Abraham took Isaac to sac sacrifice on Mount Moriah, Okay? That's a headwaters event. That's before the nation of Israel even existed. At the time of the Exodus, that story was 600 years old. You think about it. 600 years ago, when was that for us? 1420s? Reign of Queen Elizabeth I? Okay, that's, that's how far away that story was. So when Abraham is sacrificing Isaac on, you know, or told to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, which is the Temple Mount, by the way, you know, th this is something which comes down now through the entire culture of Israel. They're memorizing this story. They know what that means. All the different stories, the Passover lamb, the sacrificial system. You know, they had to sacrifice, the, the, at the Exodus, they had to sacrifice a lamb. Every, every household had to sacrifice a lamb. And it wasn't just that they would go out to the, the flock and get one that was kind of gamey and limp, you know, mangled already and the dog got it maybe and, and, and sacrificed that lamb. No, that'd be a perfect lamb. A perfect one, spotless, without you know, the best of the best, year-old lamb. And then they didn't just take it and sacrifice it. They had to bring it into their home for four days. Think about that. 
Have you ever been around a lamb? They're cute. They're adorable. I mean, down in Brazil, we had a, we had a goat. We got this little baby goat. And she was adorable. She turned into a giant big goat and headbutted my car all the time. But yeah, they're amazing. They're so cute. I mean, you, they, they have personality. They have emotion. They enjoy being around you. They respond to affection and all that. And then you got to sacrifice the goat. You got to bring that lamb into the home, fall in love with it. All the kids get to play with it for four days, and then you sacrifice it. There's emotion in these stories, in these pictures. Imagine being Abraham. God tells him, sacrifice your son. And he obeys. He does this on Mount Moriah, and when he's reaching for the knife, God stops him. Later, we have the, the Passover lamb, 600 years later, is the institute of this sacrifice of the Passover lamb at the Exodus where these things meant something to the Jews. Now, remember, God tells you what he's going to do, he does it, and then he tells you why it changes everything. Why does he tell Abraham to do that? Why does God put these very emotional moments into the national consciousness of the nation of Israel, and what are they pointing to? You see, when, when at this time they're looking forward, the cross changed everything. They're looking forward to a future they don't know or understand. But God is giving them things in their lives, in their national consciousness, which will make sense out of it all. And then you come to the cross, where it changes everything. And now we're looking back at the cross. We're looking back at those Old Testament sacrifices and things that, that taught the prophecies that taught about who Jesus is, why did he come, and now the New Testament explains what that means to you. And that's the pattern we find in Scripture. So in Isaiah chapter 9... Verses 6 and 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is Isaiah speaking, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. And this message is part of the memorized national consciousness of the nation of Israel. They have these words memorized. They know who Messiah is. They know where he will be born, when. They know all these things, and they know what he's come to do. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now look at the names. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Is this just a regular guy being born? Absolutely not. You, would, you are never going to see a man born of the lineage of Adam and Eve is never going to be called Mighty God. That's impossible. To elevate one of us to that place can't be done. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We see the mission of Messiah is to liberate people who are held in deep darkness. That's us. That darkness is more than just ignorance of God and his word. It is defined as oppression and a yoke of burden. It speaks, this passage speaks of the rod of the oppressor, if you look at the larger context here. 
the promised Messiah will liberate not only from ignorance, but also from the abusive tyranny that dominates this planet. You know, Luke chapter 4, when, when Jesus is being tempted, Satan says to him, all this belongs to me, and to whoever I will, I give it. He's going back to that first moment where he, he won it all. Satan wasn't lying when he said that. All, this, all that's in rebellion against God belongs to me, and to whoever I will, I give it. All the wealth of this world, and when you look at the wealth of how it's distributed in this world, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It puts a lot of pieces of the puzzle in their proper place. When you look at the mega wealthy people of this world, the evil things that they do, their agenda, makes sense. You know who they're working for. And Messiah has come to destroy the work of Satan. He's come to destroy all that system. He's come to make things right. And of, of his reign of righteousness and justice will not end. We are still looking forward to that. Amen? Amen? One day, that will be your future. You will be living in that place. Amen? Doesn't seem like it now, though, does it? Doesn't seem like that's already accomplished. Doesn't seem like we're living under that righteous rule. And the names of the, of, in this passage indicate without a shadow of doubt that the Messiah will be God incarnate, or he himself. So let's go back to that prophecy in, in Genesis. He will crush your head. Who's God talking about there? He says, I'm going to show up and do battle with you and defeat you. I will do that myself. We know that the Messiah is going to be God from this passage, these two passages right here. Now, Wayne asked me to preach on Luke chapter 1 and the story of Mary, but we're going we're to skip a little bit before that. There's something I want you to see here, which I think is one of the funniest scenes in Scripture. In Luke chapter 1, if you open your Bibles there, We have uh, Zechariah, the story of Zechariah. He's in, the, uh, he's in the temple, he's serving, he's doing his priestly service in the temple, and he has to go into the Holy of Holies, and an angel meets him there, okay? Before I go into this, I have a thing with my granddaughter, Zoe. Sometimes she gets, she gets real talkative, and she'll talk back, and she'll jabber away sometimes, and she'll be kind of disrespectful, and we say, Zoe, your mouth is on timeout. Your mouth is on timeout, kid. You've lost the privilege of speaking until you straighten up and fly right. Until you say sorry, you're done, okay? Zechariah here. The angel comes to Zechariah, and he says, says to him, basically, you and your old age and your wife are going to have a child who is going to be John the Baptist, and he's going to announce, you know, the coming of the Messiah and all that. And Zechariah asked the angel, I love this, he says, how can I be sure of this? Verse 18 and 19. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? As I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. He's, he's doubting, he's contradicting him. How, how, can I, how can I trust what you are saying? How can, how can this be? He's, he's challenging what an angel just told him. I love Gabriel's response. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. You can almost hear this. Not the no pun intended pregnant pause in between Zechariah's question and the angel's answer, okay? How can this how can I be sure of this? I am old and old man and my wife is well along in years. 
this gigantic shining angel is standing there in front of him, you know? And he says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now your mouth's on timeout. Okay? And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you do not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. He takes no guff. You do not question an angel, okay? When they come, you know, never had it happen personally, but yeah, you listen. You say, mm-hmm, okay, God sent you here to tell me this. Interesting, most of the time when angels appear to humans, unless they're in human form, the first words out of their mouth are, don't be afraid. Their sight is terrifying. To see one of them is, is they're, yeah, powerful, terrifying beings. They just inspire fear, and they know it. When they appear in human form, which they can do, they don't have that reaction, but you see them in all their glory, it's like, whoa, okay, what's going on here? I just love that. He just, the attitude of it. And I bring that up for a very real reason, that we're going to see Mary, the same angel goes to Mary. And she questions what he says too. Okay, and it's a little bit different. So who was Mary? Before we go and read the rest of the chapter here, you know, I, I grew up Presbyterian, became a Baptist later in life. I recovered from that. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm healing. Um, don't really know what I am anymore. I'm a believer. I believe in this book. Okay, my faith is based on what this says. Now, not every religion, denomination is that is true of. And you know, the Catholic—I'm not here to speak against the Catholic Church. You don't build your house by tearing someone else's house down. Okay, but a lot of people have had Catholic background, upbringing, things like that, and there's a lot of confusion about Mary. So, who was Mary according to Scripture? Okay, she was not the wife of God. She was a woman who was chosen by God for a very specific purpose. And we know from Scripture that after the events of these days, after she gave birth to Jesus, she went on and had a very normal life and normal marriage to Joseph. We know a little bit about the family life of Jesus because we see at 12 years old, Jesus is in the temple, and Joseph and Mary are there, and they search for him. Fast forward to Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana in Galilee, and there's no Joseph. He's not there. And presumably he died somewhere in between. When Jesus is 12 and about 30 years old, he lost his father. His human father, who's raising him, died at some point. He was a carpenter. We know all these things. So Mary was a widow, probably. We don't know that, but that's probably the most logical explanation why Mary and Joseph were not at that wedding, is that he had already passed away, so she was a widow. We know that at the cross, Jesus tells John to take care of his mother rather than her mother, mother and father. We know that he was not there then. Okay, so Jesus had a normal family life. He also had brothers and sisters, regular brothers and sisters. Okay, and if anyone wants to, it's a, it's a longer study. I'm not going to get into all of that here, but marriage and family was a little bit different back then. You would be betrothed to a, you know, the, the, a lot of the marriages were arranged. It wasn't like romance, meet somebody, fall in love. It was like this family agrees with that family and these things are set up. And Mary was betrothed to Joseph, who was probably older. She was young. We don't really know how old she was. Could have been as young as 16, 17, 18 years old. Probably less than 20 years old. 
And they knew how babies were made back then. There was no confusion about these things. So then we have this very normal young lady, young woman, going through her life, looking forward to this marriage that will be to Joseph. Doesn't live with him, probably maybe not even near him. And they're waiting for this thing, she's waiting for this thing to happen. She's engaged. And all of a sudden, well, let's, let's take a look. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, this is the one, Zachariah's wife, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And this is a very nondescript town. This is a, Nazareth was not some booming metropolis. It was a kind of a backwater place. It was known like nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That's later what I, think, I believe Andrew said. Nazareth? What good comes out of Nazareth? Town in Galilee, verse 27, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Here she is just going through life as normal, expecting to be married, and all of a sudden, bam, this angel appears to her and gives her this message. Try and place yourself in her shoes there. What questions would, would arise in your mind? She goes on, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? How will this be? The angel shows up and says, you are going to conceive. A very legitimate question for a young lady to think, okay, how's that going to go down? <laughs> What's going on here? You talking future here with me and Joseph? What... A woman has a right to ask that question, doesn't she? <laughs> Absolutely. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. Now, he doesn't say, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. <laughs> He's like, okay, that's a legit question. That we, that you are owed an explanation. God is very gracious in this, and he owes her an explanation. We're going to make... The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. The respect that he has for the word of God, the word he delivers, no word of God will ever fail. This is the word that Zechariah doubted. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. There's a lot here. Imagine being Mary, betrothed to be married to Joseph. And she is told, your relative is in her sixth month, who was barren all of her life. 
that now Elizabeth is going to have a child. So what does she do? She gets up and she goes there immediately. That's the first thing she does. Okay. He told me what's going to happen. It's going to happen. Okay. To confirm it, what does she do? She goes and visits Elizabeth until John is born, and she stays there for a couple months before she comes home. Hmm. Comes home with a three-month baby bump. And the whole world knows how that happens. There is no doubt in anyone's mind how that happens. And she's got some explaining to do, too. It's interesting that, that, that Gabriel appears to Joseph, too, and says, Joseph, don't, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. This is, he's, he's owed an explanation. He sees, okay, wow, didn't see that coming, you know. Mary comes back pregnant from, hmm, and he loved her, didn't want to make a big spectacle out of it, he was going to put her away quietly, say, you know, okay, I'm done, I'm out of here. Very legit response. And it took an angel visiting Joseph to tell him, the same angel, look, you guys are okay. God is using her in a very special way for a very special purpose. It has to be this way. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. And it says he did not consummate the marriage until after Jesus was born. That's how we know there's the perpetual virginity of Mary and this kind of thing. And, you know, she had other kids with Joseph, was a normal wife after this. And that's borne out in scriptures, in black and white. But God is very gracious in, in the way he deals with Mary here, and she's not being used. She's being blessed in this. The Old Testament prophecies that Abraham's seed will be a blessing to the entire world, to every tongue, tribe, nation. How did that happen? She gets to be the, the, the vessel to carry that. It's interesting, the, the word overshadow here, which Wayne wanted me to, to focus in on this, and this word overshadow, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Other translations in English sometimes use the word overwhelm. I think overshadow personally is, is probably the closest. It's used five times in the New Testament. It's used here in this passage. The same word is used in all three accounts of the Transfiguration where they're there on the Mount of Transfiguration and the cloud overshadows them or envelops them, that's the idea. I remember one time hiking in, in Brazil up on a mountaintop, about 6,000 feet elevation. It was this clear day, it, sunny, bright, like only Brazil can be. And all of a sudden, a, a cloud formed and just came up out of the valley and just topped the mountain and just kind of hung there and stood on top of the mountain. And it was absolutely opaque, white, thick fog. And right above it was bright sunlight. It's the, it was the most unearthly lighting I've ever seen in my life. Me and this other guy I was training were up there. And all of a sudden, it's just like fog, but it was glowing, bright, white fog. And you couldn't see more than 10, 15 feet in this. It was just amazing. That's, always, that's how I picture the being enveloped or overwhelmed or overshadowed by that cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration. Every time I read that story, that's where, where my mind goes. But that's the, that's the idea of this word of, uh, what is the word in, in Greek? Episkiazo. Yeah, remember that. Episkiazo. <laughs> to be overwhelmed or overshadowed. Okay, and God's telling, or the angel is telling Mary, that's how this is going to go down. 
you're going to be surrounded by the power of God. The power of God is going to envelop you. It's going to overshadow you. The other time uh, this word is used is in Acts 5.15, where Peter, Peter, there's so much Holy Spirit, so much going on with Peter, that as even his shadow is curing the people that are laid along the street. That people are laying their wounded and, and sick, and Peter's shadow was falling on them or overshadowing them, and they're being healed. That's how much God was, was pouring power out through the life of, of Peter. I need that from my God, don't you? Don't you just want to be overwhelmed or overshadowed by the power of God in your life? So often we are, my booming voice is, can you still hear me? Okay. Have you ever been overwhelmed by life? Where the circumstances of your life are just too, too much? I've been there. You've been there. What do you do when you get there? You know, I, what I love about this story is that we're, and you'll see at, at the end, we'll come back to this idea of being overwhelmed. But for Mary, this, this thing was overwhelming. I'd probably have it. No, it's not that. Yeah. <laughs> got to put some tinfoil on the antenna here. That's what we got to do. <laughs> that actually worked back in the day. Where was I? Overwhelmed. We are, Mary is at the center right here of the greatest story that's ever told, right? All that national history, all that, that pointing towards the coming of the Messiah, all of a sudden an angel is standing before her and saying, you're it. You are going to be the mother of the Messiah. Everything you know. And, and the angel directly connects this, in this announcement to all that prophecy. The government will be on his shoulders. His reign will be forever. Summarizing all that prophecy that was told about the Messiah and you're going to bear him. He's going to be your son. Very, very special moment. And he's very gracious in explaining all this to her. And she's willing to do this. And now she has to go back home. And an angel has to tell Joseph, no, take her as your wife. And he becomes her protector. Rather than the one who puts her away, he becomes the one, okay, I'm going to be responsible for this. I'm going to cover that shame. And you better believe there was talk around that. Yeah, that's not Joseph's baby. She came back from Elizabeth's pregnant. And he's just going to marry her anyway. Because he loves her. And he wants to cover that shame. You better believe there was gossip. People talk. Interesting other thing in this, in this passage so the Holy One born to born will be called the Son of God. Now, after the cross, we are called sons of God. We are. That's a very important distinction. Before the cross, there's only two people ever referred to in Scripture, two humans referred as sons of God. Can you guess who they might be? Only two. Who was the first? Adam. Adam, yeah. 
We have in Luke 3.38, it's a, the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. See, Adam was a direct creation by God. There was no human lineage to Adam before that. He was created as the first one directly by God. He had no sin nature. He was perfect, but he was a direct creation by God. So the Holy One born to you, to be born, will be called the Son of God. Interesting. The Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. You have Adam and you have Christ. And what he's saying there is that baby you will be born, be born to you is a direct creation by God. He's not in the lineage of Adam. He's not born of a normal human father. He's outside of it. God literally is recreating man in Jesus. He is a direct creation of God to which he steps in. The, he, the second person of the Godhead is all that is that immaterial part of him, the body, soul, spirit, mind, emotions, and will, all that is a direct creation by God. He's a second Adam. Have you heard of that before? Yeah, back there in somewhere in New Testament later, where God's telling you what he was doing. See, God told us what he was going to do. I'm going to crush your head. going to give us a child who's going to rule forever. And then he does it. He comes to Mary and says, you are it. You are the one who's going to bear this child. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will rule in righteousness. And at the end of his throne, there will be no ending of, of his throne. What did other prophecies? The Jews knew this. He's coming to rule and to reign, but also to suffer. Isaiah chapter 53, where he pours out his life. But the Messiah would suffer as well. There's a suffering Messiah and a Messiah that will rule and reign forever. And the Jews are looking at these prophecies and they're thinking it's all happening in one spot. Later on, the, the, the disciples, Lord, are you going to bring in the kingdom at this time? Are you going to drive out the Romans? Are you going to do... And he's like, not for you. the time is not for you to know. All these things are going to happen, okay? Don't you know that the Messiah had to suffer all these things and be rejected? And he explains these things, and they just, they're too thick. They just don't get it. But here Mary is being told, this is, this is it. You're going to be this child's mother, and he will be the son of God. He will be called the son of God, just like Adam was the son of God. So this is God told you what he's going to do. He does it, brings this child in to this very touching scene where he tells Mary that he is, he's, she's going to be the one. So what does all this mean? Why did it have to be that way? Why did it have to be that Jesus had to be a special creation by God and couldn't just be one among us? See, Adam, all the way back at the garden, he was a living being. He was connected to God. He takes that fruit, and he dies spiritually. God told him, on the day that you take that fruit, you will die. Now, was it cyanide? Was it laced with poison? No, but he began to die. At that point, 
At that point, he was cut off and separated from God. At that point, he, his phys- physically, he began to die. At that point, his emotions turned against him. He, 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 negative emotions, fear, shame, guilt, all that comes in. Hatred, discord, all that comes now from this sinful situation, and we are descended from them. We, they, we inherited from them the only thing that they could give us, a corrupt mind, a mortal body, and a severed relationship with God. And that's the state of man. All of us are born into that. We are cut off and separated from God. And Satan knows that he loves that. He just gets to run roughshod over us. We can do nothing about it. But God said, you know, one's going to be born of that woman, of woman who's going to crush you, crush your head. And then he comes here and does it personally. Mankind could never come up with this story. We could never write this story. We could never write about God who washes our feet, who takes our sin. We, we could never come up with this. Mankind could never, in the, the, the breadth of how long this story, how long it took him to tell this story, to come to this moment, how packed with meaning is the words of John the Baptist when he sees Jesus coming, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What did that mean to a Jew? who year after year had to sacrifice a lamb that they fell in love with. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This, this story is just amazing. And it all comes down to that moment and that one woman who made it possible that God chose. And now, now it's happening. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15 and 21. God told us what he was going to do. He did it. And now let's look at why it was necessary, why it had to be that way, what this means. 1 Corinthians 15. Remember what, what Jesus said to Nicodemus when Nicodemus comes to him at night, right? John chapter 3. And they're talking. And he says, what is born of the flesh is flesh. What's born of the spirit is spirit. You must be born again. To be born of the flesh is to be a descendant of Adam. That you are here. The flesh is everything you can do independent from God. And here is Adam. And we're born. We're born in the flesh. And we're cut off from God. And then Jesus says, you must be born again. You have to be born of the Spirit. You have to have that, that transformation has to take place. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. What Satan couldn't foresee is that, yes, he has control of the human race. He's total dominion over them and is running roughshod and tyranny and terrorizing mankind and all this stuff. And all of a sudden he shows up, God shows up in person on this earth. And Satan's thinking, ah, I got you now. You're under me. Here you are. But he wasn't. He wasn't in sin. He wasn't of that lineage. He's the direct creation of God, who has full fellowship with God. There's nothing in Jesus between him and God. There's no sin to atone for there. There's no break in fellowship. There's no break in... And here he gets to obey. Jesus said many, many times, the words I speak and the things I do are just, I'm watching my father work and I'm doing, I'm hearing the words of my father and I'm speaking them. 
Don't you know that I am in the Father, the Father is in me? Remember, he says to you, Philip says, says show, show us the Father. He says, you've been with me how long? Paraphrasing. You've been with me all these years, and you say, show me the Father? Don't you know that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Anyone who's met me has met him. Amazing words. You've met him. You've seen him. Everything you can know as a human being about God the Father, you're seeing right here in front of you, in him. Just amazing stuff. For since death came through one man, the first Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, because all he has to give you is death and separation from God, so as in Christ all will be made alive, because Jesus is the life. There is life in him. He is life. And to be in him means to be alive. Difficult things to comprehend. We are either in Adam, the natural man, cut off from God, or we are in Christ. That's your identity. You are either an old creation or a new creation. Okay, to be in Christ is to be a new creature. Not a shined up old creature. Okay? We're not going to take that corpse, that dead person, and make him expect anything out of him. We're going to make him alive. We're going to make him a new creature. Recreated. Just as God created man in Adam and he fell, now he creates man again in Christ. As a new creation. And invites every one of us to be a part of that. To come into him. To be taken out of death and baptized into life. Taken out of the tyranny of Satan and into the kingdom of God. To be taken, you know, God did not come to make bad people into good people. He made, came to make dead people into live people. Amen? You want life? It's only in Christ. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't do anything to get there except receive him. Let's go down the page a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 44 through 49. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. And that's how God pulled the rug out from under Satan on this planet. By coming here and calling that probably teenage girl to bear the burden of being the mother of the Messiah. Amazing. Can you imagine being the mother of a sinless child? <laughs> Some of you think you are the mother of a sinless child. I can tell you everyone else does not believe that. Okay? He didn't do nothing. Oh, yeah, he did. Okay? But can you imagine being the brother of Jesus? And hearing repeatedly, why can't you be more like your brother? He, you know, being the mother... Of, of Jesus, and, you know, he says later she treasures these things in her heart that she, at, in the wedding, Gal they run out of wine, and she's like, you do something about this? I know who you are. 
And he's like, all right, for your sake, I'll do it. And he does it. It's just amazing that, to, to, to think about that. You get it that we're part of something way bigger than anything we could ever imagine? That there's something more going on here than we could ever comprehend? And here's this teenage girl going through her normal life, waiting to be her marriage to, you know, come to the time where she'll be married to Joseph and go on and raise a family and do all these things, and all of a sudden God steps in. All of a sudden God shows up and says, I've got... I, need, I, I have a calling on you. I'm going to change everything in your life. I'm going to use you for a purpose which is so spectacular, which has been foretold since the dawn of time and will last until all eternity, and you're going to be a central figure in this story. I'm calling you into the story of the redemption of mankind. Do you want to play a minor role in the redemption of mankind? Do you want to play a minor role in the redemption of mankind? Okay? The roles that have the bigger parts also come with the greater pain. And she endured that her entire life, all that gossip. How can this be the Messiah? Don't we know his mother and his brothers? He grew up here. How can he be the Messiah? You know, all that, that gossip stuck with her for the rest of her life. Can you imagine the horror of seeing your son crucified? And she was at the crucifixion. Just the horror of it, knowing what he could do. And he's not doing it. He's not tearing down the walls and, and driving out the Romans. It's just, man, like I said, mankind couldn't come up with this story. But are you overwhelmed with your circumstances? Are you looking at your life and you got such a tight focus on it that you're thinking about the bills and the fact there's that leaky pipe and I got to do this and that and the other thing and, and the world is just crushing you in and you're just looking, focusing on yourself not realizing, wow, look around. I'm in, I'm in, in the story arc here. I'm in part of something which is so, so bigger. God is doing more for me than I can even comprehend. And to just take a moment to pause and to refocus, not on your circumstances, not on what's going on right now, but to take a look at the eternal arc that we're in. You've seen in grammar, parentheses, right? You're writing along on something, you have this thought which needs to be in there, but you don't really know how to put it in a sentence, so I'm just going to make a parenthetical statement. I'm going to explain it and put it in parentheses. And everyone knows when you get to the parentheses, it's just kind of like a little note to help you explain the context or whatever you're reading, and you, it's parenthetical. It has a beginning and it has an ending. I remember one time in Pennsylvania, I was speaking at a church, and I got there maybe like a half hour early. There was no one there, but they had, it was a country church, and they had this cemetery nearby an old cemetery, you know, like really old. And I started walking around, just kind of looking at the gravestones, and there was this one, and I'm looking at it, this, this girl, I forget, I don't math well, but I could see she was born in the early 1800s and died in the mid-1800s, and I th think I did the math on there, and she died at 17 years old. Don't remember her name. I remember she died at 17 years old, and I'm thinking, wow, that was long time ago. It's like 150 some odd years old you know, that she had died 150 years ago. And she'd only lived 17 years. This little tiny parenthetical life had a beginning and had an ending. 17 years. And now she's in that spot longer than she was ever above the earth, you know, walking around. 
Our lives are parenthetical. That thing you're going through right now is parenthetical. It has a beginning, it will have an ending. And graciously, we understand what our ending is in Scripture. We know what he has planned for us. We know that we are in him and we have life. And whatever you're going through is parenthetical. But sometimes we let that get squeezed down, we get squeezed down in it and we don't realize that this thing's going to end. And what's the big picture? What is God doing and where am I in that, in that story? And take that step of faith. Believe him for what he says. Don't be like Zechariah. How is this really going to play out? What are you talking about? Word of God, can I trust it? God's way, obeying God, can I really trust this? Or is your reaction going to be like Mary? Okay, I'm part of something much bigger than I thought. Lord, have your way with me. Let it be done. Envelop me. You be the power of my life. You get to detour my plans. You get to be the one in charge. Let your power flow through me. Let your life flow through me. I'm done with that Adam life. I want the life of Christ. I'm done with being in Adam. I want to be in Christ. I'm done with that old identity, that corpse identity. I want to be the new creature and live as the new creature. That's the offer he's giving us. Is it easy? No. Like I said, the greater roles have the greater pain. But are you going to live for what's inside this parenthesis of this life? and ignore the eternity outside of it that God has planned for you? Or are you going to say, no, I'm going to base all my decisions based on what I want in this life right now. I'm not going to risk anything. I'm not going to suffer anything. I'm going to avoid everything that take, you know, takes me out of my comfort zone. Or you say, you know what? I'm going, to do, I'm going to live for that. I'm going to live for the eternal. And that's what God asked Mary to do when he showed up with the angel Gabriel that moment. Do you want to be part of something bigger? Do you want to be known by every inhabitant of the earth? Do you want to be a bright, shining star in this story? Make a difference for God? And that's what he did. So that's my encouragement to you today to uh, look outside that parenthesis. Let this story of what God did, did for her and with her and through her life say, you know what? He can do that with me too. In some capacity, he can call me to something much greater. I can be a part of something much bigger than my little tiny world with my little tiny problems. You know, the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Remember that? In us, not to us. In us, in our lives, because he is in you. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father God, I just thank you that you told us what you were going to do. You did it, and then you told us why it made all the difference in the world. And Lord, I pray that each one of us here would take that look outside of our current circumstances, outside of the small problems that we have in life compared to the greater picture, Lord, and understand that you are in our lives to do just a marvelous thing. And I pray that you would have each one of us walking in obedience and yielded to your purpose. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.